If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Titus 2. Titus 2. God's grace and His mercy that we are just singing about, it should lead us to freeness and joy. It should, re- it should lead us to thankfulness and, and praise. God's grace should lead us to senses of well, comfort, assurance of His love. And confidence in his ongoing faithfulness that if Jesus died in our place and he's raised and, and if we have the gift of grace in our hearts that he'll keep being good to us. He'll keep being faithful. His grace isn't rooted in our continued faithfulness but in his continued faithfulness. It takes hard spiritual work to fight to walk in the results of our redemption. We talked about the results of redemption on Sunday from Psalm 32. There, the second half of the psalm is on the results of reconciliation. The results of God's forgiveness. The first half talks about forgiveness and how we come to know that forgiveness. But then you get to just verse 8. I'll read it. You don't need to turn there. Psalm 32, verse 8. God says, through David, I will instruct you. And teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. So, don't be like a horse or a mule that don't understand. They have to be curbed with bit and bridle so that it will stay near to its owner. But God gives us his word. And God gives us his spirit to instruct, to counsel, to lead to give us understanding, and we're to follow him. We're to stay near to him. So yes, God's grace should result in freeness and joy, lightheartedness and praise. Remember Micah 7, we should go away from his forgiveness leaping like a calf from the stall. We should know that acceptance and comfort and have confidence in his ongoing faithfulness And fight that fight for faith and joy. But we also need to see from Psalm 32, verse 8 and 9, and other places in the Word, that God's grace should motivate us to obedience, to holiness, to doing good in His name and for others. It should motivate us to fight sin, to resist temptation, To grow in Christ-likeness. God's grace should produce a happy and holy kind of thankfulness. We've got to get that balance right. It's not easy because there are different kinds of Christians here. There are Christians who love to have the license of grace. They feel as though they can do whatever they want. And they find no problem with guilt. They just quickly run back and claim the cross as their only hope and go on trying a little bit better, but also not too concerned about slipping again. And then you have other Christians that just walk in this realm of self-induced guilt and despair that their works aren't enough, that God is constantly frowning upon them. And they need the gospel. They need Jesus' blood and righteousness as their only hope. 
We've got to get that balance right. And so on Sunday, I think I emphasized more, and probably rightly so, the freeness and the joy, the right, light-hearted praise that comes from knowing God's amazing, complete forgiveness of sins. So I want to emphasize the other part of that, the holy part of it today. God's grace should produce a kind of thankfulness that's not just happy, but is also holy. Maybe one of the best places in all the Bible to talk about that fine balance is Titus 2 and Titus 3. We'll start reading in verse 11 in just a little bit, but I want to just note verses 1 through 10. The first half of chapter 2 of the book of Titus You might want to just look down in your Bible and notice that there are specific callings here in Titus 2. You might have heard of a Titus 2 woman before, or that Titus 2 talks about intergenerational ministry, that the older should teach the younger, specifically older men teaching younger men, and and older women teaching younger women. And it gives, in Titus 2, those first ten verses, some very specific things that the older should be teaching the younger. But just notice in your Bible that verse 1 begins with this. That kind of teaching is summarized like this. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. You see that? Teach what fits what we believe. We have to believe and we have to do. And our do should be in accordance accordance with our belief. There's a way to... To counterfeit our belief with hypocritical actions. And then the section ends. Look at verse 10. Here it's talking about slaves and owners or bosses and workers. And it says in verse 10, don't be pilfering. Don't be stealing. Instead, show all good faith. So that, here's why, in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. They may prettify The doctrine of God. We have the doctrine. We say we know the doctrine. And the doctrine should look a certain way. It should smell a certain way. It should walk a certain way. And it gets really concrete. In the first half of Titus 2, it looks like wives loving their husbands, caring for their homes. It looks like young men being sober-minded being self-control. And then notice verse 11. Here's the section we want to dig into tonight. It says, God's grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Of course, that's talking about Jesus and his coming. God's grace has appeared. It came. It really, it, it blew up. It illuminated onto the scene. And in Jesus, there's salvation for all who will come to him, all who will confess him. He's a global savior. We know that. That's what we've talked about so many times in so many Lord's Suppers, not least in Sunday mornings as well. But but notice the rest of the verse here, something we don't talk about as much perhaps, that God's grace is training us to, the ESV says. Other translations say instructing us or teaching us. Now just get your hands around that. God's grace is teaching. And of course we might fill in the rest of that if it were a blank with God's grace is teaching us to to rest. Right? 
God's grace is teaching us to, to praise Him because He's merciful. God's grace is teaching us to be humble because we couldn't save ourselves. God's grace is teaching us to what? Well, all those things I just said are true. But that's not what Titus 2 emphasizes. God's grace teaches us certain things. That's the first thing I want to tell you tonight. God's grace teaches us certain things. Verse 12 gives us one of them. There, God's grace teaches us how to live. It tells us in verse 12 what to flee. Look down in your Bibles. It says we should renounce ungodliness and worldly pleasures. We should put a curse on them. We should hate them. We should avoid them. What to flee. God's grace tells us what to fight for as well when it tells us how to live. The second half of verse 12 says we should live self-controlled lives, upright lives, godly lives in this present age. This age that's not godly, it's not self-controlled, it's not upright. This implies we should have a contrast with our surroundings. We should in some ways, look differently, smell differently, walk differently, be, as it says elsewhere, a peculiar people. God's grace teaches us how to live. God's grace, in verse 13, teaches us how to long for our Savior. It says, we should be waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not spelled out here in this verse, but elsewhere, we know that we should long for the coming of Jesus in part because we're sick of sinning and we're longing for that day when our sin is done, when he defeats that part of the curse completely in us who are brought home. We should be longing for our Savior because we want to see him. We want to behold him. We want to be like him. Second Corinthians 3 says, now we look at the Bible and we're moved along from one degree of glory to another. We're shaped into the image of Christ more and more as we behold him in this book. But one day we'll behold our Savior, what? Face to face. And then we shall be, in many ways, immediately, unparalleledly like him. We should long for that. We should long for our Savior. God's grace also in Christ shows us, look at verse 14, what I might call a comprehensive redemption plan. You might have a comprehensive insurance plan through your work or something. Well, God is a comprehensive, redeeming kind of God. You see, it says here, Jesus gave himself. Himself. He gave himself. Completely for us to redeem us, to purchase us, to, to buy us back, to set us free, to set us free, not just to run away, but from all lawlessness, law breaking, ignoring his ways. He's redeemed us from our law breaking ways. He's intent on purifying us. It's a comprehensive redemption plan that we have in Christ. God's grace teaches us certain things. One of which is that Christ died 
all the way for us. He now lives on our behalf and now we're redeemed in him and he's intent to purify us, to redeem us completely. Notice the second half of verse 14. It says, God's grace teaches us that we're not our own. He says, he's going to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Notice it's a people. That's a group. Which in part means that he's redeemed us to make us part of a whole. To give us a corporate identity. To put us together like he has tonight. To redeem a people but a people for his own possession. He owns us. He doubly owns us. We're his because he made us. We're his all the more when Christ dies for us. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 says, you were bought with a price. Don't you know? You're not your own. Your body is now his. In fact, here's what he did with it now that he owns it. He made it his temple. The Holy Spirit now dwells within you. Your body is his holy temple. Therefore, Paul says, glorify God with your body. Notice the connection between, well, between our saving hope and the sure holiness that he expects of us. We've been bought with a price. Part of that means freedom. Part of it also means a holy and righteous and good kind of slavery. The Bible speaks like that. I think it's 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says, uh, if you're a slave, you consider that you're free in Christ because you're so used to being enslaved. Think of what Christ brought to you as freedom and run because you want to run to him. But if you're free... Consider yourself now a slave in him because you're so used to freedom. It, it, that's a shocking verse for us, isn't it? We, we usually don't memorize things like that. And so at the end of verse 14, it tells us God's grace teaches us to be hungry for good works. It says zealous for good works. Part of why Jesus came into this world, remember that's the thesis statement of this section, verse 11. The grace appeared. Salvation's come to all men. And part of why he came, part of why salvation appears, is to make a people who are zealous for good works. Oh, that's not the only thing Scripture says. It's not just a straight line from Jesus came into this world so that we would do good works. No, there's a big thing in between there. The cross... Your salvation, freedom, all the things that we wonderfully sung about already tonight. But that's not where it stops. It goes further and says that we should be a people zealous for good works. Now let's look at how important this is. Look down at verse 15 of Titus 2. How important is this? Well, the church must keep talking about this. Declare these things. And it's not declare at once. This in the Greek tense is declare and keep on declaring. We must help each other because we don't see this so well. We don't, we're not a good judge of whether we're being zealous for good works or not or whether we're, being a zealous, whether we're being zealous for all good works or not. So we need people who will exhort and rebuke 
And that means all of us, but it also means pastors specifically who will lovingly exercise spiritual authority. Because as here, Paul reminds Titus, a pastor, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Keep talking. Help each other. This is why, in part, he's given pastors to exercise loving spiritual authority and don't start to ignore this. Don't start to grow dull. That's why Paul says to Titus, let no one disregard you. Because you're going to keep harping on this and eventually they're going to go, white noise, come on. Can't you give us something else? Can't you do something more fun? Can't you show us something more entertaining than that? No, according to verse 15, here's a big part of the church's life and a big part of pastoral ministry. Keep declaring these things. What things? That Jesus showed up so that we would be saved, yes, but also so that we would know how to live and so we would long for our Savior and that we would see that it's a comprehensive redemption plan, not just forgiveness and then it's done, so that we would see that we're not our own, so that we would want to be zealous for good works. That's the first thing. First thing is that God's grace teaches us certain things. The second thing I want to show you here is now into chapter 3. That this new life that's been described in so many wonderful ways in chapter 2, this new life gets specific. It's not general. It gets specific. So look at verses 1 and 2. Here's part of what Titus is supposed to teach or remind Declare, it's part of the exhortation and rebuking package. Be submissive to rulers and authorities, even ones of the other party. Romans 13 says, show honor to kings and those in high places. Why? Because God's put them there. And though they don't exercise it perfectly, that authority and justice they're given, they do it better than, well, in some ways better than you would, but certainly better than uh, what would be if there was nothing, if we were left to ourselves. Be submissive to rulers and authorities, assuming they're not telling you to sin. And then just generally, he says in verse 1, to be obedient To obey God. Keep reminding them to obey. Boy, that sounds like my parenting in some ways, doesn't it? It sounds like that's fitting for parenting. When you're talking to little kids. Doesn't seem like that's so right. For pastors and for other Christians to be reminding each other. Remember to obey. Remember to be ready for every good work, to be on the lookout, to be a scout for good work opportunities, ways to help, ways to be salt, to be light in this world. And then verse 2 then turns to some negative things. Here's one way you do good work. You don't do this. Don't speak evil of people. Guard your tongue from gossip. 
Don't tear down with your words, but lift up and build up with your words, Ephesians 4.29 tells us. Speak evil of no one. Now, I know we want to put a footnote there and say, surely that means speak evil of no one who is good. Speak evil of no one if it's not true. But if it's true, go for it. No, it says speak evil of no one. May God protect our tongues as another election draws near. To avoid quarreling. Also related to elections, as you talk with family members and sometimes disagree, avoid quarreling. Oh, it's not just politics though, right? It's all year round, it's any minute of the day, a quarrel is always there lurking, taking you by surprise. What? We're in a fight all of a sudden? How did this happen? Avoid quarreling. As much as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Be quick to forgive. Be slow to take offense. Do not judge others' motives like you can see their heart. Love covers a multitude of sins, not least a few annoyances. Be gentle. Don't be sharp. Don't be quick to fight. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. That's too big. That one's too much, right? Perfect courtesy toward all people? Again, we want to put the footnote in if they're courteous to you. If not, well, it's a crapshoot. Who knows what's going to happen? It's not what God's word says. Notice how specific this is. Notice how hard this is. Notice how radical this living that we get from Titus 2 starts to look like here in Titus 3. The new life gets specific. Then thirdly, this passage tells us that this new life is built upon remembrance. It's built upon remembrance. Remember, chapter 3, verse 1 says, remind them. And then it goes on to specific things, but I think remind them really sets the tone for many verses to come. I think the Christian life is one of remembrance. I think part of the battle for holiness, godliness, fleeing, well, worldliness, it's sometimes called, renouncing ungodliness, being self-controlled, part of that battle has to do with remembering. What specifically? Well, look at verse 3. Remember what you used to be. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in anger and envy. We're hated by others and we're hating one another. Notice, you once were. You once were. Oh, I know no one perfectly has abandoned these things. We still, at times, are very foolish, disobedient, astray, serving our passions and pleasures and quick to get angry. But generally speaking, God's word says we should remember what we used to be. Now, part of that 
suggest something for the future. Keep being what you're not supposed to be. Right? Further pursue the other direction from what you used to pursue. But part of it also reminds us to look back and actually praise God for some things that, well, there has been some growth. I know it's not popular these days to say, yeah, that's better than it used to be. That sounds very unhumble to say, I'm doing better with this or that. If you're a real loving friend, you'll say, no, you're not. You just think you are. (laughs) Community groups are great for that sometimes. (laughs) Community groups should also be good at celebrating what we used to be. We're also to remember God's goodness and his love. Look at verse 4, his kindness, which is shown to us supremely in Jesus But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, things changed. We once were, but then there's this but at the beginning of verse 4. But goodness and loving kindness from God our Savior has come now. And that changes everything. What does it change? Well, it reminds us, verse 5, That he saved us totally apart from our own pathetic righteousness. He saved us not because of works that we did in righteousness. He simply saved us out of his own mercy. It's amazing. That new life is built upon the remembrance that there was nothing we could have done, nothing we could have possibly earned that would result in his saving mercy. Our only hope would be that he would not count our sins against us, and he would count to us Christ's righteousness. That's how we live that kind of crazy, zealous for good works life that was described in the last chapter. Remember how he saved us specifically. Look at verse 5. He saved us by the washing of regeneration, renewal of the Holy Spirit. He poured out on us richly this Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He made us alive, life from death, Holy Spirit renewing us. A Holy Spirit poured out on us richly because Jesus. Verse 7, we're justified, we're declared righteous, even though we're not. Remember that. Remember how he saved us. Remember his goal for us too. Look at verse 7. So that. That's a key phrase there, isn't it? So that. Why did he save us? Why did we get regeneration? Why did we get a renewing of the Holy Spirit? Why did we get a poured out Holy Spirit? Why are we justified? So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs. According to the hope of eternal life. Heirs means we're family. Heirs means we inherit. We inherit as firstborn sons. And yes, we know we got that firstborn privilege because of the true firstborn, the one and only Son of God, Jesus Christ, and His perfect obedience on our behalf. But doesn't adoption also imply something of change, identity, conformity, Some of you have literally adopted babies from other countries. 
and they become your family. They become your family as much as any kid in the family. They might have different color skin. They might, when they first got there, if you adopted later in life, later in their life, they might come home with an accent. But that will fade more and more. Be more and more like mom and like dad. They'll take on your tendencies, your habits, for better or for worse. They become like you. Adoption means we're to become like him. We're heirs. We're heirs who will get eternal life, and so let's, let's act like it now. Verse 8 gives us a conclusion. This is our last verse. All this is trustworthy, Paul says, so Titus, I want you to insist on these things. To insist on these things. Just like he did chapter 2, the last verse, declare these things, exhort and rebuke, let no one ignore you or disregard you. Then verse 1, keep reminding them. Now, verse 8, this is trustworthy, everything I'm telling you here, so I want you to insist on these things. And then he summarizes everything he said so far of what we were just talking about tonight, going back into chapter 2. Here's the summary Those who have believed in God should be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. It's for their good and it's right. It's true and it's beautiful. Obedience is right and it's true and it's beautiful. He saved us for that. We're to glorify God for his mercy, Romans 15 says. Glorify God for his mercy. How do we do that? Well, grace is received and then we glorify in response. But we don't glorify grace by self-inflicted guilt, by acting like the grace isn't there or the grace isn't sufficient. We don't glorify his grace with Uh, attempts at repayment. We don't glorify his grace with doubt. We don't glorify his grace with gloom. But we don't glorify his grace by abusing it either. Paul talks about scandalous grace in Romans 3 and 4 and 5. Such scandalous grace leads to the question... Should we keep on sinning so that he keeps paying for more sins and gets more and more credit and more and more glory? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul says, may it never be. Absolutely not. How shall we, who have died to sin, continue in it? We've been set free from sin to be slaves of righteousness, he says in the same chapter. Robert Murray McShane was a Scottish pastor 100 plus years ago. Died at the age of 29. He was known for his holiness. And he used to pray often, God, make me just as holy as a forgiven sinner on earth can be. When's the last time you prayed for more holiness? Yeah, we must always 
emphasize that grace is grace and that your righteousness gets you nowhere toward heaven or savingly so. But if that leads us to being lackadaisical about exercising ourselves unto godliness or pursuing holiness in the fear of the Lord, then we got something wrong. Effort isn't part of earning grace, but it is the proper response to grace. Our God deserves nothing less than effort, discipline, straining, and striving for his glory. Shall we continue in sin? May it never be. Yes, we need to stand in awe of the glorious, seemingly scandalous freedom of Romans 3 through 5. But we need to be passionate and resolute to say, may it never be. To look at temptation in the face and say, absolutely not. May it never be. At least to say it more than we do. And to say it increasingly more. Until we don't have to say it anymore. When we see him face to face. So tonight we come to this table. We call it the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper teaches us many things. Two primary things it teaches us, though, is that it, it teaches us about a saving hope that is outside of ourselves and in the historic Christ who died in our place and was raised the third day. But the Lord's Supper also should help us to hate sin and to long for holiness. He died for our forgiveness. He died for our freedom, but he also died to do a mighty work in us, to make a people for himself who are zealous for good works, or to make a workmanship, a people, a poem, for his glory who will be careful to do good works. The Heidelberg Catechism, a 16th century document, asked the question, who can come to the Lord's table? And it captures both sides of the coin that we're talking about tonight. I usually quote it only quoting one half of the coin, one side. Here's the side I usually quote, the half of it I usually quote. Who can come to the Lord's table? Answer, those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins, but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their continuing weakness is covered by the suffering death of Christ. Some of you here need to hear, some of you here tonight need to hear that, and and really you need to hear that only. You need to plug your ears for the rest of this. And some of you are presumptuous. I know that I am sometimes. And I need to hear the other half of who may come to the Lord's table. Those who desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. I know that sounds like moralism. By itself it does. But did we forget the first half of the answer? The gospel is for those who are displeased with themselves, who hate their sins, and more and more trust that their sins are pardoned and that our continuing weakness is covered by Jesus' victory over weakness in the death and resurrection. But that should also lead to desires more and more for faith which is strengthened 
in a life which is changed. The gospel teaches us this.